This is a Broad Pods production. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more. Good morning and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Jo Stanley and my co-host today is comedian and author Nellie Thomas. Hi there, Nellie. Good morning, Jo. You look adorable. As do you with your gorgeous background there. It's very um, uh, eucalyptus. What is that? Yeah, I think it's a banksia. And you'll be pleased to know I actually got this print from the tip shop for five bucks. There you go. Free flat. Looks fantastic and we're, we're thrilled to have you on Broad Radio today. We've got a really fantastic show full of incredible women. First up, well actually, yes, first up we're going to be joined by Dr Lois Peeler who is Principal at Australia's only Aboriginal Girls Boarding School. Such an important educational amazing. facility that is. Yeah, amazing. But she's also known as one of the original members of the Sapphires, which of course there was a movie made about the Sapphires because they toured yep. the Vietnam War. She's an incredible woman. So we're very thrilled to have Dr. Lois Peeler joining us. We also have yep. comedian Kel Wilson bringing the laughs. And towards the end of the show, Cindy Gallup, who is, I would say, a fearless agitator and founder of Make Love Not Porn, which is... going to say, we end with a bit of sexy time. Hello. <laughs> you Mother know it, goodness, Joy. Is it too early in the morning? She would say not. It's never too early in the morning. Well, she's joining us from New York, so <laughs> yes. it's, it's exactly the right time for her. But uh, that's all coming up couple of uh, bits of housekeeping at the top of the show that we always do. Firstly, if you're watching on YouTube, welcome. Please like and subscribe. That would be awesome. If you're watching on Facebook, you can like and follow. All of these things really help us in our development. Um, we love it if you comment and if you join the conversation throughout the show. We uh, really enjoy it when we hear your thoughts about what we're talking about. And if you are unable to watch live, which is a bit weird because I'm saying that even though if you're not live in your if you're watching live, you, anyway, I mean, I've suddenly gone into Inception world, but you can catch up. You can catch up to all of our episodes with our podcast, Broad Radio, on the go, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, um, a bit of controversy to start the show, Nellie. We run a one-question poll every week. Yeah. 
it's our more to say poll because we know everyone has more to say and we want to hear it. And our most recent poll was in honour of the Friends reunion, which we'll get to in just a moment. Oh. But um, the question was, what was the best 90s TV show? And the list went Friends, X-Files, Buffy, Seinfeld, Party of Five. And my mind was completely blown when I tell you that the winner of this poll was The X-Files. Well, look, I don't want to start on a deputy downer, but that makes me question your viewers and your listeners <laughs> because I would have thought a bunch, this is broad radio, where's Melrose? Where's 90210? Friends. Yeah. Seinfeld so, even. I mean, yeah. I love the X-Files as much as the next person, but they wouldn't be in my top five. Melrose was the last, was right at the bottom of the list. Only 4% chose Melrose. Like that was a I weekly was ritual. I was in Perth yeah. at the time when Melrose was on and we had a weekly ritual in my shared house if, of watching Melrose together with a bottle of cheap vodka. If anyone called on the landline during my, like I was physically angry. <laughs> like properly angry that someone would interrupt it. Yeah, Melrose was the greatest. I'm shocked. Yeah, and well, for me, Friends is always number one when it comes to right. 90s TV shows. And um, so that is my smooth segue into the Friends reunion. Um, you loved it, Joe, didn't you? You loved it hard. Nellie, I was ready to be really cynical about it. Because yeah. it was essentially six very wealthy people loving themselves. <laughs> you know, and, and I was ready to hate them for it. But unfortunately, sure. it sits in, in my makeup as such a critical part of it, it. It really is. And I was instantly yeah. drawn. I think it was the set. How clever was that? Yeah. How they totally recreated every last detail of that set. Which was gorgeous. And I get that. I think I spent the first half hour raging because I thought it was a reunion of the characters. Oh. Like I thought they were actually going to do an episode to show us where they all were yeah. rather than sit down with James Corden and, as you say, love themselves sick, which, mm. like, good on you, but I didn't need to see it. <laughs> yeah. But within about half an hour I started to really warm to it and I loved watching the viewers talking about how important it was to them. That yes. was that was gorgeous. Malala. Malala uses Oh, so Malala. She's beautiful and a friend. Oh, they bloody got me with that. I was wedged. I'm like, this is superficial nonsense. <laughs> oh, my God, there's Malala. Like, come on. It was Speaking great. Speaking of superficial nonsense, I love a bit of Fat Joey. I oh, love yes. that Joey. Yeah, he's living his best life and I was so happy sure to see is. him. I, you know, and I guess the comparison with Matthew Perry, who just seemed so out of sorts and disconnected with the group and, you know, Matt LeBlanc just sitting there with his hands crossed going, yeah. Just going, I'm, I'm eating carbs, I'm living <laughs> the best life. With Matt Perry, I must say I did, I started to Google, I went down the Google hole and I can't believe how people are so, I mean, I can, but I can't believe how mean they are about mm. him. Mm. Like, okay, let's accept on face value that he had some mouth surgery or something or whatever. Even if you don't accept that and you think he's off the sobriety wagon, mm. why would you rage at him so hard? I know. Like, I, I, just, I don't understand it. I really don't. But also... What about that moment? So we're really we're deep diving into the reunion now. Yes. Can't help it. Um, what about that moment that he actually confessed to the cast that yeah. after every episode he would essentially have a panic attack 
yep. um, about whether or not he had performed well and got the right last and everything. And they were surprised by that. And yeah. I thought, yeah. this is supposedly a very tight ensemble cast. They didn't yeah. know that. Surely they knew that he was facing demons because even during that 10 years, we knew yeah. that his weight was up and down, all that sort of yeah. stuff. And then since then, yeah, that people are railing against him. I'm like, this is a person yeah. who's got some, some things. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, actually so. And that, I think that really jarred with me because he was sitting there saying things like, you know, I'd throw up before each episode. Mm. I was so, I'm so self-critical that I can't watch it back. I did, did I? And there, there was this sort of facade that they're all like BFFs and yet mm. they're all going, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> do I know more about Matthew Perry than you? Because I've only seen him on rehab shows. Yeah, so right. <laughs> I, I, mean. I just felt like they yeah. didn't really put his aunt, their arms around him in the way that I wanted them yeah. to. But you're right. You know, you, Matt, Le, Matt LeBlanc's been on the carbs and if any of those women had been on the carbs, there would have been a lot oh, of judgment around that. I haven't so. eaten a carb since the late 70s, like mm -hmm. for real. One thing I really noticed, like it was quite jarring. Again, I thought the men look like me and I mean that with love and affection. <laughs> They've aged. The same way as I have aged and I'm yes. about the same age as most of them, whereas the women, and I don't say this with judgment because there's reasons why and blah, 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 but honestly, they, they look, you know, 25 years old mm. and it was so stark. I thought if those women had put on 20 kilos, yep. for example, would they get any work? No. 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 They would be on all of those, you know, Gossip Hollywood Today kind of uh, shows. Yeah, about, you know, how just let herself go. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a so that, that may be a little bit sad. But yeah. I did, I mean, I still, I loved the central perk, you know, I loved the monkey stories. I loved the, <laughs> yeah. the Jennifer Aniston and what's his name, romance. I can't remember Ross's name. Schwimmer, David Schwimmer. David Schwimmer. I love that sort of revelation that they actually did have, you know, sexy feelings yeah, for each other. I know, I um, love that. That too. was kind of cool. Yeah, it was I, sweet by the end, but I was into it. I thought you meant when you said the men look like me. I thought you meant the way that how, you know, how men end up looking like middle-aged women. Like David, Schwim <laughs> <laughs> David Schwimmer has got a slightly feminine look about him now. Look, look, I mean, giving some red lipstick and, um, yeah. No, I meant they'd actually age. Yes, no, I agree yes, with you. Yeah. That part too. Um, all right. Well, that was super fun going down that friends rabbit hole with you, Nelly. Um, please do uh, enter our next More to Say poll for your chance to win some beautiful Saba Organics Love Your Hands pack. Uh, Saba Organics is one of the world's only 100% certified organic skincare. And this week we're asking a very simple question around vaccination because I'm really interested to know, have you had it? Are you booked in? Um, are you still waiting or have you decided, not for me, I wonder? I'm 100% booked. If you yeah, ask, that was rhetorical, too. but I'm yeah. telling you, I'm booked. <laughs> no, I'll I'm take booked too. Step. Yeah, I'm booked in this Saturday. Can't wait. Can't wait for that one. Um, so <laughs> what has life come to? I'm booked in this. Do you know, honestly, for real, I actually thought to myself yesterday, should I go and donate blood just to get out of the house? Oh. And I'm not actually kidding. <laughs> oh lockdown what it does like strange things hate. to you mm. it's a good community service it's it a is. couple of hours out 
and they are actually looking for blood at the moment. I they do are. know this. Yeah. So yeah. Hot looking... date on Saturday, Joe. I'll see you there. If you're looking for a good time, you get a free cookie yes. as well. <laughs> <laughs> so Nelly, um, we do love to celebrate victories here at Broad Radio, and I just wanted to mention this wonderful victory this year for the first time. The Archibald Prize has gender parity among the prize finalists. First time Amazing. in 100 years. Yeah. Ooh, um, incredible. And so congratulations to Catherine Longhurst for this beautiful portrait of Kate Sobrano. She won the Packing Room Prize, um, which is they have all these sort of random extra prizes in, in and around the Archibald Prize. Mm. And isn't that a beautiful painting? Oh, it's, it's actually, I mean, it's such a cliche to say this, but it's very powerful. Like it's very powerful, that painting. I find that it's really um, captivating. Yeah. So congratulations to Catherine Longhurst. And it is wonderful that we have gender parity for the yes. first time in 100 years in those prize finalists. There are four Indigenous artists in the finalists as well. Now, did you know that there's only been 23 that have been identified as Indigenous in the, around 1,500 finalists over the last 100 years? 23? Yeah. So, Given the prominence of Indigenous artists in this country, that is phenomenal. It, it's There's wow. a lot of work to be done there. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to mention particularly Sally M. Nangala Mulder, who is one of the four finalists this year, and her work, which is just beautiful. Um, I was unable to get the rights to any of her, sh her paintings to yeah. actually show that. But... Um, her paintings are so raw and beautiful and they depict very much life living on a station um, just outside Alice Springs. And uh, what I have read is described as the consequence of state policing on people's lives. So mm. critical storytelling there. And you can find, I mean, as you said, difficult to get the rights for today, but you can find images of her work really easily. Mm. And I, I love that quote from her that, you know, they, very lofty, like what, what inspires you? What do you do? I just paint. Yeah. I just paint. Like there's a, there's a real sort of artistic purity in that. I just, mm. I just paint. That's what mm. I do. Yeah. I love that. I love that too, and, and she her work is really beautiful. We do encourage yeah. you to check that out. It's timely because it is National Reconcilia Reconciliation mm -hmm. Week this week, and um, I really believe that, well, here at Broad Radio, we're very passionate about reconciliation. We absolutely embrace the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and we encourage you to check that out as well. Um, and we believe that it's time for constitutional change and structural reforms so that there is absolutely a First Nations voice to Parliament. Um, but the really critical thing is understanding, listening, really listening to First Nations voices and their stories and histories. And that's done through art, through music, through um, really beautiful conversations and sitting down and actually um, maybe us shutting up for a bit and listening oh. to what our First Nations people have to say. Well, it's, I, I think it's it's interesting, you know, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I, I can't actually believe that it's still controversial, the idea that we would have a voice to parliament mm. for the oldest living continuous culture on earth. We know they were here first. We know that they're critical to our history and managing the land and culture why can't we just it, it's not even enshrining power 
Mm. It is literally just saying we have to listen to you before policy is made and we're not even ready for that Yeah. As, yeah. as a parliament. Like that's actually quite hard. I mean, I don't want to be too depressing, but it's that's heartbreaking to me. It's not even, as I say, it's not even enshrining policymaking power. It's just literally saying, can you please listen to us yep. before you make these decisions on behalf of us and everyone else? But it's also for me, I think it's about deciding what kind of nation we want to be yeah. and acknowledging that a huge part of this extraordinary country and our history is the First Nations peoples. Why can't mm. we acknowledge that? Why can't we give that in a joyful way, in a kind-hearted, open-hearted way to go, mm. this is the country that I want to actually associate myself mm. with. This is the country I live in. And again, I know this is a rhetorical question, but I'm going to answer it. Are <laughs> <laughs> you good at that? <laughs> that we don't like to look at shame. You know, yeah. it's a bit like when generations ask older generations, you know, if you say to your parents, oh, I, I, I feel like this hurt me and you did mm. this, oh, sorry. Mm. You know, it's a bit like that for um, Australia in terms of reckoning with what we have actually done to our first peoples. We don't like to look and feel our shame, I think. You're spot on there. But um, it's time. It's really time because it's the only only way you can heal. So in in our commitment to and passion for listening to the stories of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at Broad Radio, next up we're going to be joined by proud Yorta Yorta woman, Dr Lois Peeler. She's a trailblazer for women and fierce advocate for First Nations peoples. And that's coming up after this. Well, we continue to have on Broad Radio extraordinary women who have done incredible things and our next guest is no different and I'm absolutely thrilled that she's joining us on Broad Radio. She's perhaps most well known as one of the original members of the Sapphires, which was the band that we had a movie made about them. They were a singing group that toured the Vietnam War. Um, But she's also lived an incredible life as an advocate and a passionate voice for Aboriginal rights. And she was a model back in the day, but she's now the principal of Australia's own, only, I should say, Girls School for Aboriginal Girls. And she joins us now. She is proud Your to Your to Woman, Dr. Lois Peeler. Good morning, Auntie Lois. It's so lovely to have you on Broad Radio. Uh, Good morning, Jo. It's lovely to be here. You know, when I was at school, it was a shock to me that my teachers or my principal had a life at all outside of school, <laughs> it, you know, because kids sort of don't think that way, do they? Um, but I wonder, what do the girls at your school know about the extraordinary life that you have led? And, and what do they most want to know about you? They're very curious. And it was said to me recently through via the teachers they want to know how I became, how I came from Kamraganja to Vietnam to being principal of the school. So can you share that with us? Kamraganja yeah. was quite, I mean, it's one of the most notorious stations, I believe, because it was uh, what I've read, and I'd love you to explain this to us. It was, it was the site of probably one of the first or most well-known Aboriginal rights activist moments 
uh, in yes. I think it's known as the Cumbragunja walkout. So tell us what you lived on the Cumbragunja station. My family certainly did, and uh, yes, it was um, due to mistreatment. Um, my mother and father were very much involved at that time. Um, had had a, a large family and they and others were protesting the conditions under which the people were living and I think the thing that motivated my mother was that there were a number of children that died under the management, the very poor management at that time and this uh, along with um, the, the poor rations that were handed out these were things that motivated the people to leave and so that became the uh, now famous uh, Kamragunja walk-off, which, um, you know, people left in mass and camped on the Victorian side of the Murray River. And Annie Lois, I'm really curious about the girls who come to your school because we know that there's a there's a significant problem in mainstream education in Australia in terms of lack of knowledge and understanding of Indigenous history. Do the girls who come to your school, are they aware of the walk-off, for example? Would you say, do they have that knowledge? The girls that come to Warrawa Aboriginal College come from Aboriginal communities across the country, um, many of which uh, culture and, and traditional practice is deeply embedded. And so they live a, a, a very strong cultural life. And in some communities, they don't have access to a secondary school. They might only uh, have primary schools. And so there is a, a gap, I think, in education um, opportunity for those kids. And many of them come to Warrawa. And of course, our curriculum um, has a very strong focus on Aboriginal history, Aboriginal culture, ecological knowledge and, and, you know, learning from the land, which is our pedagogy. But as Nelly highlighted there, Auntie Lois, there is a massive lack in understanding really pretty much all Indigenous history across all schools and for adults as well in Australia. And even, even that story of the Cumbragunja walk-off, I, mm. I can't believe that that's not common knowledge. That's the kind of history that we all should be learning about. How can we get that more openly spoken about? Well, Joe, I'm very pleased to be able to say that we're going to be uh, now um, launching some materials uh, very soon. In fact, we had to postpone the launch of the Aboriginal Changemakers. We've been working with the Parliament of Victoria to develop educational resources for schools. And um, so that will be launched um, in coming uh, weeks, hopefully. <laughs> But uh, the other thing that we've done at Warrawa is establish a professional uh, learning institute so that we can tell our story to, um, you know, the pre-service teachers, to uh, universities, to government agencies, uh, so that they have a better understanding of Aboriginal history and Aboriginal culture. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's time because you're right, there's, there's not enough information in, um, in schools. I mean, some schools do teach it, but it's up to, the, up to the particular school. So it's not embedded in the Australian curriculum, for example. Um, so we're trying to change that 
It seems, Auntie Lois, like one of my kids went to two different schools and it points to what you're saying. At one school, because the principal of the school's really invested in kids learning about Indigenous history, um, learning the things that you're talking about, that was a big part of her education. At the other school, it wasn't. So it's sort of up to whoever, you know, it's at the discretion of the principal and the teachers, and that's just too piecemeal. That's exactly right, Nellie. And, you know, I think it's it should be um, in in the Australian curriculum as a, as a required part of the, the curriculum. And uh, as you say, uh, right now, it's only up to the principals. Mm. Well, yeah. I know that my daughter at the moment is learning about the gold rush and she is bored stupid. And, <laughs> and you know, there are so many rich stories from yeah. our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories that she's missing out on, that we all have missed out on as a part of our nation's history. It is, of course, National Reconciliation Week. And to me, that's one of the important parts of this conversation is like, how can we learn more stories and really get a richer image of what our what our country is? Well, one of the things that we've, we've done at Warrawa Aboriginal College is actually uh, develop a history walk um, that highlights change makers, we do call them change makers, um, individuals that fought to bring about change in this country. And going back to, um, you know, people like William Cooper, who was um, one of the, one of my clan actually, from Kamraganja, and others like um, Annie Marge Tucker and, and uh, Pastor Sir Douglas Nichols, who we should all be hearing about now yes. because of the AFL uh, round. But, you know, and other individuals that have made a significant difference um, in uh, Aboriginal society. And we want to share that story. And so people are able to come out and walk through our uh, history walk and hear about our history. Mm. Can I change tack slightly, Auntie Lois, because I'm, I'm an emotional creature. And I just wanted to ask about, I, I imagine the experience for a lot of the girls coming to Warrawa was quite emotional. And I'm wondering, how do you think, what's your sense of how they feel coming to your school compared to uh, mainstream school experiences they may have had or the thought of going to a different school? I think uh, in the first place, um, families choose to send their child, their girls to Warrawa because it is an Aboriginal school. It's steeped in Aboriginal history and culture and Aboriginal values, and that's how we operate the school. And I think the girls, um, they, they're able to transi transition into our program uh, because of the experiences that they gain from other girls and they feel one. It's the sense of place that we're able to offer them, you know, with um, Aboriginal um, ways of knowing, doing and being just threaded through everything that we do. What a beautiful mm. place. Um, mm. Can we get a little more of your history though, Auntie Lois? Because, you know, you glossed over it very quickly. You went from Kamragunja to mm. singing in Vietnam for the troops to now doing this important work um, as an educator. Uh, can you fill in some gaps from Kamragunja to how you ended up being a part of the Sapphires and what was it like? And this like? is so, so superficial, but I want to hear about the modelling because <laughs> yeah. look at that face. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, that is a beautiful face. 
I, I don't often talk about myself, to be honest, but um, I started modeling um, at 16. Um, and I, I went to a school really just to learn, you know, um, all the um, better things, I suppose, of social graces and everything, because I wanted to work in an environment. Um, I thought working in a corporate office was, you know, it for me. And so I, I took myself off to learn all of that. And, um, you know, it, it just turned out that I graduated and it was from a school that was run by Brenda Marshall in Collins Street, Melbourne. And um, so there was a big event when I actually uh, graduated. I went on to work at uh, what the GTV9 at the time. Um, and so I was working on a breakfast show there. And then I uh, was picked up by the um, Australian War Board and, you know, my career just took off. So I, uh, I love doing that, but I was freelancing and, you know, that can get uh, pretty tough at times. So yeah. uh, we, we were singing then to make up the, you know, <laughs> the gap. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so that led to, you know, going to Vietnam. Um, and I thought, you know, I often get asked this question, but it was kind of a sense of opportunity and excitement. And I love to experience other cultures, by the way. I'm very proud of my own culture, but I also like to share um, others, other cultures. And uh, so I took that opportunity to go. And um, but when we got there, it was a little bit frightening. And we thought, hmm. Let's go home. <laughs> you know, the, the Viet Cong were, were bombing uh, Thompsonut Airport in Saigon where, the, where our plane landed. And, you know, we really got a bit scared. But uh, anyway, it all worked out. And we were, wherever we went, um, the, the, uh, the country, the town, the city, I should say, uh, was it was like normal, you know, you could go here, go to restaurants, you could go to the market, but we were always under military escort and, and felt fairly safe. But when we had to go out to the areas where the troops were located out in, in, in the bush, you know, um, it was quite different sort of going through the, the, um, the villages and things and you could actually see the you know the results of skirmishes and things and that was kind of you really realized that you were in you know a war zone and there were mm. times when you know we could see the traces and all that so that it had its moments it had its mm. moments but you know we always you know, that's where that song from Cumbrigunja came in Yumna, the one that our family always sang and it, it's featured in in the uh movie sapphires so um you know that kind of brought us always back home to to Kamraganja and to our family and still does by the way that's mm, beautiful one of the things just bringing a couple of threads together in terms of the, the the gaps in our knowledge of aboriginal history i think we're starting to learn more and more about servicemen and women who were aboriginal and torres strait islander and how they've been ignored when you were in Vietnam, which I can't believe, for, by the way, that your first trip overseas was into a war zone. Like, that blows my mind. But anyway, um, did you meet any Aboriginal servicemen, for example? 
No, um, we didn't at the time. Our uh, our trip to New, uh, to Vietnam was uh, sponsored through the uh, the USO, so it was uh, it was the Americans. But we we did have when we were um, you know doing our thing, entertaining the troops, uh, Australian troops would come in as well. Uh, but I didn't meet any Indigenous, but just by the by. Uh, yesterday, we were to attend uh, the Aboriginal Memorial uh, Remembrance Service at the Shrine, and of course that was uh, postponed. Um, but um, Warrawa Aboriginal um, Girls' School was going to perform and uh, sing in language um, some songs that, you know, were... Um, to remember our Aboriginal people. And, you know, there have been um, many, many of our people, men and women, um, that that were in the war zones, wherever that might have been, um, and were never, ever um, acknowledged or recognised. They go to, to war and fight for our country, but when they came back, um, they weren't able to... Um, you know, enjoy the things that um, the uh, other Australian troops uh, had a uh, access to. So that's always been a hurtful thing for our people. Mm. Auntie Lois, you have uh, lived a lifetime working for Aboriginal justice and um, being a real leader in that space. And again, we thank you for coming on Broad Radio to have this conversation with us. Um, what, what, you know, th- thinking over the years, I'm imagining at that time, maybe even in Vietnam or in and around your experience in the Sapphires, you would have faced extreme racism. Has anything changed? Are we sitting in a space now where we have grown as a country, where we are uh, in any way moving towards reconciliation? I think that there's been a lot of work done um, to advance reconciliation. I think there's still a lot more to be done. I think that um, education is fundamental and I think that, you know, um, the, uh, there's a lot of healing to be done as well because some of that intergenerational trauma comes from, you know, being um, part of that dispossession, dislocation and dispersal from our traditional lands, which, of course, we're still fighting for, you know, with um, things like uh, land, you know, the... Um, native title and uh, traditional owner settlement and, and things like that. And um, it, it's hard. And, you know, past government policies which tore up families and, and saw a lot of our people removed to institutions. And sadly, um, the re- removal of children is still being done today. You know, a lot of our children in, are in out-of-home care. We have the highest rate of uh, incarceration across the country. So these things are the effect of, um, you know, past government policies. We have a lot of work to do, and I think, as I said, I think education is fundamental to bringing um, about a, a more... Um, knowledge in terms of uh, reconciliation. Annie Lois, I know this is a massive question, but I have to ask it while I've got you. Do you still believe in the concept of reconciliation? Is it something we should still hold on to? Yes, I do. Um, I think that uh, as a country, we, we do need to 
be reconciled. But I, I, as I said, I think there's a, a healing journey that has to occur too. And I think reconciliation has to be meaningful. I think it, it has to be past uh, more than the symbolism of, you know, flying the flag, the, the Aboriginal uh, flag and the Torres Strait Islander flag on special occasions. I think it's got to be more than that just you know, being something symbolic. I think it's got to be something tangible. And, um, uh, you know, I think that working together, um, we, we should be able to reach reconciliation. There's a, there's a way to go yet, I have to say. But at, at least there has been some positive steps. And the critical thing is that, um, you know, it has to come largely from those of us, well, you know, people who have the privilege. That, that conversation has to come from everybody in the country um, and, and, you know, people have to really be willing to kind of listen to the First Nations peoples who are telling us their stories and their histories. It's that simple. Well, that, that's right, Joe. And I think that um, there's still, look, there's pockets of racism, I think, not only in this country, in every country, but, we, you know, we still experience racism. We still have people that think, oh, that's all in the past, you know, mm. let it go, get over it. But when you look at, you know, the poverty and um, the, the issues that affect um, our First Nations people, um, we've, we've got to do more in terms of improving that and then we can be properly reconciled. Mm. Well, we're really grateful to you, Auntie Lois, for joining us on Broad Radio today. We absolutely love Warrawa Girls' School. It's so beautiful. Um, it's such a gorgeous space. I'm a real passion, very passionate about girls' education in general, but I just, um, I'm really in, inspired by the work that you're doing for the girls at your school mm. there, Auntie Lois. Thank absolutely. you, Joe. Thank you, Nelly. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. We'll have more Broad Radio after this. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Broad Radio, talking inspo we love, info we need, and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday, 9am, Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here.
2am existential crisis? We've got you covered. Broad Radio, here for more. Oh, Nelly, it's time for a laugh, some more laughter today. And, uh, well, our next guest, you could say, needs no introduction, but it would be, it would be rude for me not to. So <laughs> Be rude. <laughs> no, you can take it. She's been waiting patiently in the wings there. You would know her from Have You Been Paying Attention, from The Weekly. She's one of Australia's best stand-ups, although originally from New Zealand, but we claim her. Cal Wilson, gorgeous to see you. Hello. Good morning. Oh, look at you, your colourful, beautiful, glittery <laughs> thing there. It's oh, so look, she's gone to no oh. effort whatsoever. <laughs> I feel like I've um, time travelled to a year ago because this is my corporate gig background for the last year with my red curtain and my fairy lights and something shiny to draw attention to the face. <laughs> oh, well. And you've had a haircut. How is it possible that you keep your hair looking so amazing in lockdown? Um, because the front of it I took care of and the back was just Gandalf. So I only <laughs> paid attention to the front and had like coloured shampoo and things like that. But oh, so you are a mozzie. Oh. It's a mullet. Business in the front, <laughs> party in the back. Cal, um, I followed you religiously a few months ago when you were in quarantine in New Zealand. Uh, your Instagram account really, I have to say, was outstanding because you you took to quarantine and crafting the next level, let me tell you. Can you just take us through what was going on for you? Okay, so I was in quarantine and uh, I had um, I had some masking tape with me and a tablecloth because I was doing some corporate gigs in a hotel room. And so I masking taped my, that's the tablecloth, up as my <laughs> backdrop. And then once I got into quarantine, I was like, I've got masking tape and a tablecloth, what can I do? do with that and once I'd remembered there was a self-timer on my iPhone which took a week and a half um, <laughs> I suddenly was like I've, I've got all these these plastic bottles what can I do with these bottles I've got bottles and masking tape what possible grown-up use can I find for them and then I just started sticking them together and making costumes and it really um, it would take me all day to I had to google how you make a sheep out of a towel for little Bo Peep um, and yeah it just it, it really it made quarantine so much more bearable because I knew I had something to do that would make other people in quarantine laugh because I was on a Facebook page with other people in quarantine and so it was like oh what can I do for everyone today and when you say quarantine Cal you mean like hotel can't leave the room quarantine yeah. not the kind of lockdown we're going through now like you're you're in a room with the with the mini bar and that's it yeah, it was it was quite weird because I was going over to see my folks in New Zealand and uh, it felt a little bit like I was malingering, like I felt like I was pretending to be ill because I was basically lying in bed all day and having meals brought to me. Like yeah. it felt, um, <laughs> you know, and especially for, for parents and stuff, like being away from your kids and just all you're allowed to do is just be in your room and entertain yourself. Like it's it's not that bad. Like it was quite oh, like really? a lot of naps. <laughs> Because you're, I think you're the first person I've spoken with who's done the proper full-on hotel quarantine, right? And so I've tried to imagine, like, did you feel a bit like you were going a bit, bit you nuts. know, a bit nuts? Yeah. No, because everybody was so kind and I was so grateful to be there. Like, um, you know, I hadn't seen my family for a long time. My parents are a lot older and so 
you know, it was, it was, um, it was such a head change from living in Australia and always being able to go, oh, it's just three and a half hours home to no, no, you can't get home when you want to. And so I was just so grateful. And everybody uh, involved in quarantine was so kind. And it really, um, it reminded me of the difference between Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so when I was at the airport coming over, like there was lots of, you know, have you got the right paperwork and, um, you know, sort of cops wandering around looking really intimidating and everything. And then you get to New Zealand and the attitude is kind of like, I'm so sorry, I'm a police officer. Are you all right? You know, like just a completely different um attitude and so everyone was so aware that we were all about to do this weird thing and so everyone at the hotel and everyone at the airport and everything there was just kindness and it was really um it was really quite touching so you know what and also i think joe the one thing cal's not telling you because she's too modest to do so like i've known cal for nearly 20 years and she's the most relentlessly positive person i have ever met like <laughs> She will make, she will polish a turd. Like, <laughs> I have, you, you and I both have other comedy colleagues who did the same quarantine in New Zealand who ended up, and I don't mean for a second to make light of mental health, but one of our mutual friends ended up on uh, watch, as in people oh. were literally knocking on his door a few times a day oh. because he told the truth when they did the welfare check and ended up bringing in, yeah. like, sudokus and things to do. Oh, so. Certainly, I think you coped better than anyone that I know who was in hotel quarantine. I, and, and I think, you know, I was just so grateful to get there. That was that was a big part of it for me. And also Mel Buttle, who is a, a, another darling colleague of ours, she did quarantine in New Zealand a few weeks before I did. And she said something to me which really made a difference. So we used to do gigs on cruise ships and little comedy cruises and uh, that lasted for sort of like three days. And so... She said to me, it's just like uh, a cruise gig, except all the gigs have been cancelled and you just have to stay in your room. And I was like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> like it totally changed. It just meant, oh, okay, so it's uh, it's snacks and good sleep. Like that was sort of how it felt. And then people did lovely things for me. Like I had a friend who I hadn't seen in a million years, but, you know, we kept in touch. And uh, she just... I messaged her just to say, like to comment on one of her Instagram photos. And she goes, um, we're about to see you quarantining. And I was like, oh, um, at the at the Grand McEwen. She's like, I'm on the street. I'm literally on that street. Do you need anything? And so I was like, oh, could you bring me some chocolate? Like what a what a terrible privileged thing to ask. Me. I just need some chocolate. Um, but so she dropped off this parcel of chocolate. And then she goes, um, have you got something bright to wave at the window so I can see which room you're in? And she's like, what a stupid question. Of course you've got something bright. And so I was yeah. waving my pink and orange shorts at the window <laughs> and she goes, I'm going to dance for you. And then <laughs> on the street with a hat and cane, she danced. She just did this wonderful oh, little dance, her. threw her hat up in the air and twirled her cane and everything. And it was so magical. And then knock on the door, that's the chocolate arriving. When I get the chocolate, I come back to the window and she's just gone. And it was like this beautiful little Aww. magical. It just, I, was, I felt like I was high for about two days afterwards. <laughs> like it was that's so, gorgeous. It was just so gorgeous. So a lot yeah. of people, I think, would not like to be alone with their thoughts for that amount of time. I reckon that's really challenging. And also not to be able to go outside or exercise. Did you struggle with that? Well, we did go outside to exercise. So we had this um, scenario where you could book a spot on the exercise bus and <laughs> there was a limited number of people who were allowed on the bus so that you all had 
distance between you and then they'd bus us out to Point Chev and then there was a there was a field set up with a, a big sort of metal fence around it you just walked around in a circle for 45 minutes so that felt a little bit prisony. Yes. I was um, going to say when you got shoved in the shower when you got back. <laughs> yeah. Did you smell anything? And the other thing in? was you're not, you're not allowed to break a sweat when you're exercising like so you have to you know and that was the most stressful part of it. It was like, oh, oh I can't break a sweat because presumably you could sweat at other people or something. <laughs> oh, um, my God. <laughs> I would have been really good bonkers. at that. Really good at oh, that I part. Was, yeah. I was, like, so paranoid about it. But also I um, I kept entertaining for myself because I was just passing people all the time. I was like, I'm a fast walker, I'm a fast walker. I'm not breaking a sweat, but I'm a fast walker. <laughs> so, <laughs> little challenges for myself. Not competitive at all. Not competitive at all. No. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but also I think the missing link here, you think this is normal behaviour, but let's just clarify for everyone else that you are, like, at your you're living your best life with the glue gun like you craft like no one I've ever met she once made me a bedazzled shoehorn as oh, a present that feels like a like, really it's oh my god look at you I don't know about a bedazzled so shoehorn is, though because how's that that how's that slipping into a shoe I question well you the don't put the bedazzling bit on the bit that you squeeze it oh okay oh okay Okay. We don't um, go so for make Christmas wreaths. when we're dealing with Cal Wilson. We go for beauty. <laughs> and what is that? You've yeah, made so, your own so, wreath there. Yes, yeah, so I bought I bought the wreath, but then I glued the things to it. Like so, so um, mm. I find it. You know the way that there's uh, there's um, doing a jigsaw is soothing. I find the same thing doing uh, glue gunning, and also as it turns out, making things with masking tape um, <laughs> because it's like. It's like creativity without stakes. You're just having a nice time doing a little of that. Look at that. That is all of the Qantas spoons I've collected from flying over the years. <laughs> so. so basically it was either a stellar career in comedy or you were going to be a kinder teacher. Like it was, you quite, know, you quite possibly. Shit it's, everywhere. It's a similar kind of crowd control, kinder teaching and, and, yeah. Yeah. and similar, similar clothing choices, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, Kel, I'd like to raise the fact that if I was two weeks in quarantine, left alone with a mirror and a pair of tweezers, oh. it, I mean, I, oh, I would have no eyebrows left, essentially. Um, yeah, this, so, endless. Like, you so know, we you would just spend your whole this. day. Yeah, we're discussing this how when you get to your age, there's a lot of reflective stroking of the chin that happens. That's not really just thinking, it's going, oh, yeah, there's three on that side. Oh, oh but also there. you go, I'm I, working up a good one here. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, that's not ready today, but tomorrow. I yeah. call myself the chin farmer because it's like I'm looking after the crops and making sure how long it's going to take. I'll use a peg in a pinch. So the <laughs> horrifying thing about quarantine was I forgot to bring tweezers <gasps> so there was two weeks it was like I had a bead curtain going on underneath like oh. the first thing I bought when I got out was two pairs of tweezers so one for on me and one for at home oh my the god the army should have supplied that like that is that's a necessity <laughs> I've tweezers in the car mm. in the lounge room I've got tweezers in the, in the car kitchen, in the bathroom the car's yeah. good light yeah, we all have tweezers in the car because yeah. you can't get. But I don't know. It's the sunlight and that visor yeah. mirror. You're just like, yeah. oh, that is a ripper. 
right there. <laughs> I, have, I have requested too, because the eyesight is going as well, how wonderful. Yes. Um, I am thinking of requesting uh, a magnifying mirror with lights for Christmas. Mm. Like how, how horrifying is that? But that's no shame. What no I'm shame there. Because what else are you going to do? Grow, yeah. grow a beard? You don't. You need. You need to be able to yeah. see. <laughs> it's a but do you think the thought? Because some. Sorry, Cal. Sorry, I was going to thought though, yeah, when you, when you... Amazing... Oh God! We're so... I'm going to stop. <laughs> I get this thing when I'm pulling a, a little tweezable hair, which are always remarkably rope-like and much thicker than the other hair. Mm-hmm. Is that when you're pulling out that that you might just accidentally unravel your face? Like you've got the bit that <laughs> yeah. the loose thread in your. <laughs> How far up will it go? Spoken like someone who's just a crafter. Just Because I've never, ever, yeah. I mean, you know, I, that's like someone, are you a crocheter? Would that actually happen? <laughs> oh, I'm not I a crocheter, a really but one. I might start just in case I need to um, knit my face again. <laughs> Have either of you made that terrible mistake? You know, the beautiful Denise Scott line that you start plucking by Braille because you can't see anymore. So you're just feeling. Mm-hmm. I did that with my eyebrows. <gasps> I just was just feeling, just feeling around. And, of course, I went too far and ended up with, you know, basically a pencil line. Mm. Don't do that. I'm, I'm with you on the magnifying <laughs> mirror for the eyebrow. The chin, feel your way. Feel it. But here, yeah. the mm. shape matters. Yeah. Yeah. Stay away from that. But how sad is it that the amount of excitement you get if you're out and you're like, oh, I'm going to yeah. be able to get that when I get home. Mm. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a treat. And then I become quite fond of it. I almost give it a name because you keep yes. returning to it throughout the day whenever you've got a Oh, and once thought. I get it, I hold yeah. it up to the light, have a look, see <laughs> oh, how thick it is. What I, do, what I do is I lay them all down in a little line together to see how many I've got. <laughs> and how surely you've got some use for them in your crafting world. Mm, what masking tape. <laughs> I could oh make myself Lord. new eyebrows with the ones that have come out of my chin. Oh, fantastic. Now, oh, goodness. Cal, it's been lovely to have you on the show and I understand that you are about to appear in the Brisbane Comedy Festival. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, that is yes. true. So uh, I won't be bringing you... this. I'm totally bringing this. <laughs> so I think it's uh, 21st of June, something like that, uh, you are yes, opening there. Right. Yes, that's right. So And tickets are at Ticketek. So head along to see Cal. If you happen to be in Brisbane, lucky you. Thank you so much for joining us on Broad Radio, Cal. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more Broad Radio after this. (laughs) Oh, now, Nellie, geez, we have filled an entire hour already. We have. It's been a joy to chat with you. Um, This is where we normally would wrap up the show, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. But, but first, there's more. Well, look, firstly, we're in lockdown, okay, in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and so we have a lot of time to sit around and talk. And I actually came up with Broad Radio during lockdown last year. Did you? Yes. Oh, well, it had so been, been percolating. And then during mm. lockdown last year, I went, you know what, damn it, I'm just going to bloody do it. Going right? to do it. Yes. Um, and it kind of occurred to me during that time that we need a space where we have conversations with incredible women like Dr. Mm. Lois Peeler and Kel Wilson mm. and yourself. Mm. Um, yeah, and you, et cetera. Et cetera. No, I think you're right. And, and I think a lot of good ideas actually, you know, when you said to Cal, it can be really hard to sit with your own thoughts. 
But if you can actually bake, break through some of the more difficult ones, you, you can come out the other side with some great ideas too yes. and some emotional breakthroughs and mental breakthroughs. Yeah, exactly right. It's one of my favourite things to sit still and ponder. Not many people mm. are good at that, but I've, I've trained myself also. I quite like just looking out a window like a cat. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can see you doing that. I struggle with that, but I'm trying to learn because I think it, it just avoiding all that stuff, it just bubbles out somewhere else. Yes. So anyway, ordinarily, we would be wrapping up the show right about now, but yeah. our next guest is incredible. Um, we have spent a lot of time talking to other incredible women today, but we didn't want to not bring this interview. We had a chat with her a couple of days ago, actually. So fun. Oh, incredible. She's founder of Make Love Not Porn, which is the world's first user-generated social sex platform. It has 500,000 members. She first announced Make Love Not Porn at a TED Talk in 2009. Her name is Cindy Gallup, and we're just going to play a little bit of her TED Talk here. Predominantly men in their 20s. And when I date younger men, I have sex with younger men. And when I have sex with younger men, I encounter very directly and personally, the real ramifications of the creeping ubiquity of hardcore pornography in our culture. So in an era where hardcore porn is more freely and widely available on the internet than ever before, and where kids are therefore able to access it at a younger and younger age than ever before, there is an entire generation growing up that believes that what you see in hardcore pornography is the way that you have sex. So that's the incredible Cindy Gallup, who wow. out of this experience and this uh, incredible, I suppose, a moment of realisation around how yeah. people are being basically, their whole concept of sex was jaded mm. by pornography. Brainwashed. Brainwashed, yeah. exactly. She has established makelovenotporn.tv, mm -hmm. as I said, 500,000 members. That particular TED Talks has had over 2 million views, by the way. Um, mm. So we got to sit down with Cindy and I kind of thought, well, we're in lockdown. We've got time. Some of us are juggling homeschooling, acknowledging mm. that. Um, but mm. you can catch up with this later once your um, kids are on the screen. <laughs> Yeah. Or is yeah. on Netflix or, uh, you know, playing Minecraft? Which is perfectly fine. <laughs> Absolutely. By the way. Absolutely. No judgment there. But we thought, you know what, we're just going to go longer today. We're going to leave yeah. you with this incredible conversation with Cindy Gallup. Um, she's an agitator, a business leader. Um, she's a true fearless woman. And, oh. uh, we, yeah, we really just wanted to um, share this with you as you go about your lockdown today. Okay, so here she is, Cindy Gallup. Cindy Gallup, it is so awesome to speak with you on Broad Radio. I'm delighted to be here. There is so much that we want to speak with you about. So we thought we might start with Make Love Not Porn. Um, it's been around for 12 years now. What was your original vision for it and have you achieved that? Sure. So, um, I mean, Make Love Not Porn started as an accident. Um, a clunky little porn world versus real world website born out of my dating younger men and discovering that when we don't talk about sex in the real world, porn becomes sex education by default. And it was only when I launched that at TED in 2009, the entire world responded and I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And I turned it into makelovenotporn.tv the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. 
we are that very badly needed counterpoint and complement to porn. If porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, we are the real world documentary. And by the way, people like watching movies, people like watching documentaries. Our tagline is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Mm -hmm. We are that window onto the funny, messy, fabulous sex we all have in the real world that is so badly needed. And, you know, the interesting um, answer to your question is, I was the very first person 12 years ago to stand up on a stage and publicly identify this issue born out of my direct personal experience dating younger men. Today, 12 years after that TED talk, everybody knows what I'm talking about. And so, you know, what I designed Make Love Not Porn to do, it is absolutely achieving and it is needed more now than ever before because fundamentally, our mission at Make Love Not Porn is to end rape culture. And we are doing that by doing something very simple, but nevertheless, nobody else is doing, what we do is we show you how wonderful, great consensual communicative sex is in the real world. Our wonderful Make Love Not Porn stars in our videos role model good sexual values and good sexual behavior. And we make all of that aspirational versus what you see in porn and other areas of popular culture. So yes, we are absolutely doing what I designed to make Love Not Porn to do. And what we do is more needed now than ever before. And by the way, especially in Australia. Why do you say especially in Australia? Because um, to, um, to, actually it's also true of um, the UK as well, but um, various events around the world. Uh, and by the way, we're a global platform and you know, to, um, Make Love Not Porn has traffic and members from 187 countries. But um, you know, um, Various events have triggered um, a wave of determination amongst women to address rape culture. So in Australia, Chanel Contos is doing a wonderful job of surfacing how pervasive that is in schools. Um, and by the way, you know, um, we're, um, we're in contact and we are going to be organizing to speak to each other very soon, which is wonderful. Um, in the same way, by the way, that, you know, appalling incidents in the UK have actually driven a real wave there. Now, um, people are more determined than ever before to do something about rape culture. And so that is why we are especially relevant right now. So Cindy, I have, a, I have two daughters, one of them's 14. And one of the interesting things in uh, reading a lot of your work and watching your work is that really resonated with me is that it seems to me she's at risk, if we want to put it that way, uh, not just from from porn in the sense that we understand porn, but also, as you just indicated in your previous answer, from the wider culture, whether that's advertising, mm -hmm. um, how sex is portrayed in Hollywood. Which area do you think is the greatest risk? Because I think as parents we automatically assume it's porn, it's porn, that's the thing that's going to be dangerous. Would, do you think that's true or is it the wider culture that's more dangerous? You know, that's a great question. And the really depressing answer is um, it is literally everything surrounding us, you know, because it is um, what we see in movies, in TV, you know, streaming on Netflix. And what it all stems from is the fact that every single industry in popular culture 
is male-dominated and male-led. And so what we see predominantly is through um, the male lens. And, you know, unfortunately, because that has become so much the norm, many women have internalized that as the way to look at the world and the way to create, um, you know, um, uh, output in, in, in popular culture. So, you know, I, I've been trying for years to address this in my own industry, advertising, because women are the primary target um, for advertising. We are the primary purchasers of everything and the primary influencers of purchase. But the advertising industry is male dominated. We are sold to ourselves all the time through the male gaze. And so we really have to address this in every single industry. And the good news is that in every single industry are women and right-minded men, and by the way, you know, non-binary trans individuals who are determined to change all of this. And every single one of us, every single day, taking actions to do that can absolutely make this change. But, but, but it really is, unfortunately, that embedded in the fabric of our society, and it requires all of us to change it in every possible way. And Cindy, that's very much one of the reasons why we're creating broad radio, because the media and particularly radio is very much through a male lens. And I see the impact on that, on what, the way women see themselves and, and the narrative Ooh. that we are taught around us. It's skewed by a male voice, very much so. Um, but what do we need to then learn and tell our children about um I, I suppose, really engaging with who they are and, and embracing who they are and loving who they are away from that lens. Um, do you know what I would say to all parents, and by the way, to, to everybody, and, and everybody incidentally who has any influence of children, as, you know, I'm childless, but I absolutely give my nieces and nephews the benefit of my advice, trust me. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I have to tell you one fabulous example um, of what I mean, which is a friend of mine, Caroline Detman, over here in the US, a wonderful woman who started an agency called Have Her Back, which is all about addressing everything we're talking about. And she tells this anecdote of how decades ago, um, her mother took her as, as a kid to see the movie Grease. You know, and obviously, by the way, I mean, I love the movie Grease. I could watch it endlessly. You know, we all love it. The songs are fantastic. John Travolta, Living Newton-John, they're wonderful. But I love the fact that Caroline says that, you know, there she was sitting enjoying the movie. And when they left the movie theater, her mother said to her very, very emphatically, Caroline's never forgotten it. She said, Caroline, never, ever change for a man. <laughs> and you know, obviously, she's referring to the last scene in Greece, where, as we know, Olivia yes. Newton-John comes out. And, you know, and 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 you know, Caroline's sort of sitting there as a kid, going, "Whoopee, this is wonderful," and her mother's going, "Never ever make yourself over just to please a man." And I bloody love that her mother said that. I mean, that that is literally, you know, sad but true. These are the mini interventions that we all need to have mm. every single day and when we can. I mean, I have absolutely, you know, with my nieces, uh, and obviously incidentally, you know, one has to be very careful um, what one says to one's nieces and nephews when, you know, your sisters, you know, um, you know, are you know, looking out for whatever might be said. But, 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 but I've absolutely said to each one of my nieces, you know, never do anything just for a man. And 
and I've said that especially on the career path, do not follow a man somewhere, you know, and, and obviously from the height of my great age, I'm 61, you know, I know perfectly well that who you're madly besottedly in love with in your 20s, you will look back one day and go, what the hell was I thinking? But, but you know, I, um, you know, I talk to so many people and, and I do personal coaching and I always ask people to tell me their backstory first, you know, to talk me through and literally from the beginning, born, raised, because that tells me a lot about who they are, what, how they tell their story tells a lot about. And, you know, the, the number of people, and, and by the way, this also applies to men, not just women, but the vast number of people whose career path involves, you know, um, I followed a man to this country, to this city, to this other state in the US. You know, I, you know, I moved to such and such because, you know, in the case of men, it's, you know, I followed a girl, you know, I followed a woman. And, and by the way, you know, sometimes that works out for the best, but, but quite a lot of times it doesn't. <laughs> and so, you, you know, to, um, I just think that, you know, ev even if people don't seem like they're receiving this kind of advice well, the onus is still absolutely on us to, to, you know, give this advice, make these points, intervene where we can, bring a different lens to bear, you know, encourage, you know, girls and boys to look at things differently um, with anybody where we have any influence whatsoever. So, yeah, daily mini interventions. That's really interesting, Cindy, because I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of microaggressions, which a lot of people from minority groups, mm. you know, talk about having those sort of mm. daily grinding down. To me, that is the opposite. That is the what I try and do with the kids and in my work, and I know Joe does as well, wherever you can, those teachable moments, which sounds very lofty and wanky, but wherever you can intervene, you're watching Greece. Let's talk about Rizzo. Let's talk <laughs> about why she's being slut-shamed. Yep. Let's talk about, you know, how she's being represented. And then, as you say, at the end, let's talk about why did Sandy have to change? Why did Danny not have to change? And you can do that rather than sitting down and having the talk, you can do that every day in different situations. No, absolutely. You know, I am um, a huge believer in microactions. And that's because, you know, to your point, change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. Every single one of us, every single day, taking microactions. And the point about that is, these are so small and simple and easy to do. Cumulatively, they add up at scale to enormous impact. And you're absolutely right. The opposite of microaggressions is microinterventions. You know, when you see something happening, you know, something inappropriate, something racist, absolutely intervene and, and you know, absolutely bring a different lens to bear that will make everybody think differently about what they do going forwards. I, I have to say that my daughter is uh, 12 and she rolled her eyes at me the other day and said, Mum, not everything is a teaching moment. <laughs> Which, you know, so sometimes, you know, they call you on it because they just want to live as well, which is fair. But I, I'm reminded of that old adage, Cindy, that you um, show, not say in a lot of ways. And that's very much what you're doing with Make Love Not Porn. I do watch it. I love it. 
Um, and it's demonstrating to all of us a different way of being with a partner, um, which is really glorious and beautiful and real, as you say. But I, I know that one of your goals, and I'm going to quote you here, which, um, you know, sometimes you can fall short when you quote someone and they say, I didn't actually say that, but it's from your Twitter. So I know you did. <laughs> Um, you said uh, your vision is for everyone in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex and I think that's amazing but I also think that we are often most of us are raised to kind of be embarrassed or deeply ashamed of ourselves as sexual beings and I wonder how can we reach acceptance of ourselves mm. as sexual beings sure and, and so this is absolutely um, what make love not porn is all about because we are we are socializing and normalizing sex we're bringing it out into the sunlight and 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 to your point you're absolutely right i designed make love not porn around my own beliefs and philosophies one of which is absolutely communication through demonstration you know don't don't say it be it and so i think you know the really interesting and powerful thing about make love not porn that absolutely um, means we have the ability to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior for the better, is that all around us um, in popular culture, we see narratives and creative expressions of relationships, but we never see the actual sex. On Make Love Not Porn, you get to see the actual sex, but you also get to see the relationships because those two things are indivisible in our social sex videos. And when I say you get to see the relationships, I don't just mean you get to see healthy relationship dynamics modeled by couples, threesomes, you know, we are, we are fully inclusive with all of that. You also get to see the healthy relationships our solo Make Love Not Porn stars have with themselves. Because we have many solo videos you know, to, um, men, women, non-binary trans individuals who have shared these very intimate videos of, of how they masturbate, how they love themselves um, on our platform. And those absolutely demonstrate what a healthy relationship with your own sexuality, your own body looks like. And our members find these transformative. I mean, they find all of our videos transformative. But, you know, they, they absolutely say in the comments when they write to us, how our videos make them feel better about their own bodies, make them feel able to have a greater sense of sexual agency, you know, make them lose um, guilt and shame and embarrassment. And, and by the way, in, in really powerful ways as well. I mean, I'm blown away by what, how well Make Love Look Porn does what I designed it to do. I'm also blown away by how well it does things I never designed to do. So we hear from survivors of rape, sexual assault, sexual abuse, we hear from women and, and men in this context, who tell us that Make Love Not Porn help them reclaim their bodies, help them feel able to be sexual beings again in a healthy way. And so, you know, it, it, it is extraordinary how powerful the impact of drawing back the veil on what we're all really doing in bed in the real world mm. and showing you people who are entirely comfortable with their sexuality who are having a wonderful time of all ages by the way again a very powerful part of what we do is that older people love the fact that we celebrate make older love not porn and and you know um, people just respond to that astonishingly well and and 
you know, that, that, that is absolutely how you embrace your sexuality and revel in it and find it therefore enormously empowering. You know, to, um, I often say that um, if I can get Make Love Not Porn funded at the scale the way I want to, not only will we end rape culture, you will see productivity shoot up in offices all around the world because that's <laughs> how powerful, com comfortable, relaxed sexual energy as a natural part of us is. Well, people respond to truth, don't they, Cindy? You know, they respond to truth and that's what you're doing. And, and taking that uh, and running with it, let me tell you a truth of mine, which is a bit raw, but I am recently out of a 21-year relationship. So I haven't dated since the late 90s. So I'm not ready for dating yet, I must say. But at some point I will be and I have to take this opportunity to say to you or ask you, what the hell do I expect? Because <laughs> I think things have changed. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, so, so, um, so, so do you know, um, I am, I actually, so, so I'm very open about the fact that I date younger men casually and recreationally, you know, I, um, you know, I've never wanted married, I've never wanted children, I adore being single, I cannot wait to die alone, and, you know, I date younger men for sex. But, interestingly, people looking for their soulmate should consider applying the same principles I do to dating casually because, you know, um, I meet the younger men I date on cougar dating sites. I applaud the rise of the niche dating site where everyone knows exactly why they're there. Um, but no matter how casual the relationship, I have one fundamental criteria. They have to be a very nice person. I have fantastic radar for very nice people. As a result, I only date utterly lovely younger men. Um, but um, I'm highlighting that to you because when people date looking for a relationship, a soulmate, must be a very nice person is not normally number one on their checklist. You know, mm. there's, you know, got to have a job, got to have ambition, got to have drive, you know. And I highly recommend making your absolute number one criteria be, are they a very nice person? Okay. Oh no! I, so can, I, can, I think that's very good advice. And can I just add, I'm not looking to ever live with anyone again. Let's just put that in there. <laughs> yes. Oh my God! The joy, the joy of living on one's own. Absolutely. But, but um, here's another um, principle of how I approach dating that that may entertain um, your audience. So. When people, you know, online date or whatever, you know, they set up that crucial first date IRL, what people will say to their friends is, oh, well, you know, the only thing that matters is that, you know, he's attractive to me, she's attracted to me, that's all I'm looking for. Not true. Because when you walk into that bar, or that coffee shop wherever, where, where you're meeting that person for the first time, the thought that all too often goes through people's minds is, what would my friends think if I walked into a party with this on my arm? They are looking for socially endorsed attractiveness. In my case, I'm not, you know, because if I like them, I'm taking them home and shagging them. So, you know, I'm not worrying about what anybody will think of any of my younger men. And, and by the way, um, the younger men I date absolutely do meet my friends in due course and, and have done. And, you know, but, but my first criteria really is, are they attractive to me? And I don't give a damn what anybody else thinks. And, um, and, you know, I would 
strongly recommend to people, you know, actually, when you meet somebody, really take out of your head that thing it's very easy to do, which is what would other people think of this person? Because I think that gets in the way quite often when you're looking for a soulmate. You're looking to tick boxes for things that at the end of the day aren't really what matter to you. Oh, Cindy, I'm too old for that shit anyway. You know, I I like them or, or, you know, that's all that matters. And it reminds me of um, when you say look for someone nice, it reminds me of wonderful Dan Savage. You know, his advice, don't fuck Nazis. (laughs) Okay, that's a good criteria. That is a good one. You've you've got to like the politics to some degree of the person Mm. that you are and politics in the broadest sense. Mm. Mm. No, absolutely. And, And by the way, the entertaining thing about my selection criteria is that, ironically, my so-called casual relationships go on a lot longer than most people's so-called committed ones. Mm-hmm. Because I date younger men off and on for periods of two, three, four, five, 10, 15 years. Um, they may go on to date girls their own age. They may go on to marry women their own age. Uh, we stay friends because we like each other. We'll meet platonically for coffee or drinks. And then every so often those relationships end, those marriages end, and they return. It's very nice. Hmm. I think I think though what you have Cindy which a lot of people don't have is actually knowing what it is you want you've spent some time really honing that and understanding that about yourself which is I think one of the greatest skills we could instill in each of us and particularly our children as they grow is actually think about and listen to your heart and what do you want mm-hmm. no you are absolutely right and This is another place where you need to strip out societal expectations because there are many people living lives they don't really want to live because of fear of what other people will think. I I really wish everybody would just look into their hearts and really think about exactly what would make them happy because if they did that, you know, many more people would not rush into getting married because it's the thing you do Many people would not have children, you know, who should not really have had children um, if they actually stopped to think about that versus the, you know, parental pressure, all of their friends are doing it. Fear of what other people will think is the single most paralyzing dynamic in business and in life. You will never own the future if you care what other people think. Mm. Oh, my God, I'm getting a tattoo. (laughs) You will never own the future if you feel what other people will think. Oh, my gosh, Cindy, uh, we could talk to you for hours, but we both wanted, Nellie and I, to raise this amazing article that you recently wrote in the Harvard Harvard Business Review about the seven worst pieces of advice that we give women um, in their careers. Um, There were lots of really beautiful things, you know, talking about mentors not being useful. And my favourite was, don't tell a woman to be more confident. What a useless thing to say (laughs) to someone. Um, can you share a little bit about what, what would you like women to know? What sorts of advice is going to help them in their career? Sure. And, and do you know, um, I was thrilled to write this article. It's actually the, the, the second article I've written for Harvard Business Review with my friend Thomas Hamoro Primozik. Because honestly, um, you know, before anything else, this is what I really want every woman to have in her mind every day as she goes to work. Tomas wrote the single most read Harvard Business Review article of all time. He wrote it back in 2013. 
it's called why do so many incompetent men become leaders <laughs> and and in this article Tomas's premise is you know we we talk quite rightly about the many barriers that face brilliant women in their careers but a far bigger problem is the lack of obstacles for incompetent men and because that article was so popular Tomas has turned that into a book which I highly recommend the book is also called why do so many incompetent men become leaders and how to change that? And I blurb the book for Tomas. You will see that I say on the jacket, this is the single most important business leadership book of our time, because it is. Because it's just really important, first and foremost, for every woman who is absolutely ambitious as hell, wants to make up the career ladder, absolutely wants the money and the power and leadership and positions, as we do, it's really important for her to know that the reason all of that is dominated by men is because of the lack of barriers in a patriarchal society, in a patriarchal business world for incompetent men. And that first and foremost is what I want every woman um, to, to think of. Um, and, and then, you know, um, you know I, 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 I would just say, um, the, the, the first piece of advice in that Harvard Business Review article, I do feel, um, especially strongly about, which is, you know, to, I've been saying to women for years, strike the word mentor from your vocabulary and replace it with champion. Because women are told all the time, you've got to find mentors. And within the term mentor is this sense of, you know, a mentor is touchy-feely, chat, 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 shoulder to cry on. And I go, we don't need mentors, we need champions because champions are people who make shit happen for us. You know, we need what men get all the time, which is other men prepared to go out on a limb for them, to stake their reputation on them. A champion is somebody who behind closed boardroom doors slams their fist on the boardroom table and says, if there's only room for one pay raise in my department, it's going to Jane, not John. And, um, and I feel especially strongly about this because you know, I'm regularly asked, Cindy, you know, you've had this great career in advertising, you know, um, how did you achieve everything you achieved? And I go, I was incredibly lucky. And I was incredibly lucky for two reasons. The first is that I was never sexually harassed in a way that destroyed my career prospects. And by the way, I was totally sexually harassed. But unlike all too many women, it never happened in a way that derailed my career. And the second thing is that I entered advertising in London in 1985. I can literally count on the fingers of one hand how many female bosses I had in my career, two, because advertising is massively male dominated. But I was lucky enough to work, you know, for Dave Trott at Gold Greenies Trot, for, you know, Bartle Bogle and Hegarty at BBH. I was lucky enough to work for men who saw my potential before I did, who believed in me, championed me and wanted to see me succeed. And, and that is what got me all the places I got to go, you know. And so women find champions, men bloody be champions. And I say that because unfortunately there aren't enough women in the upper echelons of companies to be champions as well. And then, and, and then you know, the, the, the last thing I'd say about, about the article that you absolutely highlighted was, I get really fed up with 
women being told to be more of something when actually we should be telling men to do a damn sight less of something. Mm-hmm. You know, we are told all the time to change our vocabulary. Oh, you know, ladies, stop saying sorry so much. Eradicate the word. You know, honestly, the world would be a far better place if we stopped telling women to say sorry less and told men to say sorry a damn sight more. Every single man every day saying sorry repeatedly, endlessly, would result in a far better business um, world and a far better world generally. So honestly, women, stop and think when you're given bad career advice, you know, go, should I be doing less of this or should men be doing a whole lot more of it? Imagine if we taught more men to say, is that all right with you? Is that okay with you? Which is another thing we get told not to say. Yeah. Oh, Cindy, it's just been such a joy to speak with you. You describe yourself as the Michael Bay of business because you blow (laughs) shit up. (laughs) And I just am grateful that there's someone like you in the world doing exactly that because you're a real trailblazer. You're a role model for me and many, 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 many thousands of women around the world. And you're changing people's lives very much so with uh, makelovenotporn.tv. Check it out. Cindy, what a delight to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, you know, I, I would just love to see everybody taking everything we've talked about and going out there with these micro actions, with these micro interventions every single day, because we absolutely can change all of this. We're going to do it, Cindy. We're going to do it for you. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Cindy. You have a great evening. You too. Okay. Have a great day, guys. Bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.